Hello and welcome to Bridget Episode 1. I'm your host, Ali Graham. Today I'm joined by ethical taxidermist Jasmine Miles Long. Let's get right into it. Enjoy. So I call myself an ethical taxidermist because I just use specimens that have died from natural causes or that have been hit by a car. Mm. And as well as that, I'm interested only in doing work which I would see as respectful for the animal. The reason I think it's a craft is because of the way um, we have to follow the rules to make the piece. But I think that art happens kind of when you put that thing in a different space. So if you put your taxidermy in a gallery then I think you could be considered an artist going through your website I I see it as an art just the intricacy and also the way you can see the colors like because obviously you're not necessarily going to see a kingfisher in real life and be able to appreciate the vividness of it do you amp it up in post as it were none of the feathers I, I don't dye feathers or anything like that obviously I have to clean everything so if it's a dove and I want it to be whiter I'll put it through a bit more of a hardcore process because they are usually a bit more yellow and everything in side the ears on mammals or around the eyes or the gums and the legs on birds and the beaks the bills will eventually fade all the color will go so all of that's repainted in terms of process getting into the sort of nitty-gritty of it it's just skinning is that right yeah I do give uh, talks and things in museums and I think the first thing that I like to show is the skin and the body separately I think people presume that I'm going to be elbow deep in guts and it's really disgusting and it's not very nice I mean I'm removing a skin but underneath your skin you have a membrane so you've got skin and then a membrane and then your muscle right so you're going in between those two parts and so your muscular structure with all of the skeleton and everything is all intact and there shouldn't be unless it's been hit by a car and there's like blood trauma it should be quite clean Mm. and then you've got your skin separate on mammals i use the skull um, and then the whole of the rest of the structure or the form is recreated using the body as reference so i'll use um, a traditional method called bind up for mammals which is where you have so it's called wood wool. It's basically like a packaging material and you wet it and scrunch it over a wireframe and wrap it round with cotton thread and you have to basically recreate the same shape that you've got on your desk. And I use the skull because it's just ob- an obviously good reference to mm. the size of the head. So in terms of getting to the skull, is that where it gets a little bit messy? Yeah, it's not. Um, it's definitely something you get used to. It's not so bad with the mammal because I boil my skulls to clean them. and So it's kind of like... If you're making a stew and you have meat coming away from the bone, whereas with a bird you're doing it raw, straight from from the skin um, and the brain. Is that that to maintain the feather? Yeah, because you can't obviously boil the skull while it's attached to the skin because it'll all fall apart. The the brain is like strawberry mousse or something. So it's quite an unusual thing that you wouldn't normally be in contact with and it's not pleasant at all. Are they quite consistent across animals? Yes. So it's pretty much brain's a brain. And the strange thing is, is you see them when you see a brain on, you know, say you see an autopsy on TV or they have one in a jar, it's been fixed in formaldehyde. So it's hard and solid and a mass. And a living brain as well has blood pumping through it. So if you see a brain surgery, it will be, you know, quite a firm mass. Whereas when you die and there's no blood pumping through it and it's not fixed with formaldehyde, it's just mousse. It's got no consistency. Dig it out. Yeah. Mm. 
Lovely. <laughs> Would you know sort of where you're going with it before you skin it or is, this, is there a certain improv? You have to know what you're going to do as your end result kind of before you start the process. The best reference you have is obviously a live animal and then the second best thing is your dead specimen. So I often put them in the pose, take photographs and measurements before I start skinning because once you've removed the skin, if you imagine you have your foot and you have a sock, the, the skin is the sock and it has no reference to its shape particularly, right. which is why you get pieces like the walrus in the Horniman Museum, which is basically a big overstuffed lump and it's because they kept stuffing it because they weren't sure when it would stop and they thought the skin would give shape and it didn't it just kept going so he's got no wrinkles which he should have he's just smooth with a walrus you'd probably wanting be wanting to make nowadays some kind of fiberglass uh, mold or a shape and then you'd cover the whole thing in a glue and kind of form your skin onto that but as i say they're used to the word stuffing comes from original taxidermy where they used to literally skin the animal and then stuff it now the technical term is mounting because you're putting skin onto your form so you're okay. mounting the skin so is, is stuffing like a dirty word it's in a the dirty text? word yeah yeah actually they both sound quite yeah, dirty they do yeah yeah that's the problem you don't want to it's difficult wanna... using both those words in context with animals it's true so in terms of how long they last is there like a this is guaranteed for three generations or obviously you need to upkeep it properly and as with anything but if I've done my process perfectly well and I've cleaned and tanned and pickled all of that my skin should last a very very long time whereas the only thing that's going to get it nowadays is insects so right I do think cases and things like that are better to keep the dust off and obviously physical contact yeah is that quite degrading so if you yeah that's funny. <laughs> if you uh, touch your taxidermy, you'll be putting grease onto the fur and feathers. And I have a fox at the moment in Derby Museum, and that is open for children to cuddle and stroke. And I think we have a two-year kind of idea that he'll last for about two years with that much contact. So at some point, a kid's going to be stroking it and, and sort of it will break. Off yeah. So he's going to go bald. That's what's going to happen oh, okay. first. He's going to be stroked bald. I guess that's quite nice for kids to actually physically touch something obviously it has that shelf life but as an experience i hope not many kids have stroked a fox just because yeah. yeah. that, that could be quite unpredictable and maybe a bit diseasy but i've sat in the gallery uh, where the fox is kind of anonymously and just watched people interact with it and it's really nice that kids will run into the gallery and shout fox and run over to it and i've seen them kissing it and things like this and the parents encourage it so when we were kids the laws had changed around shooting and the wildlife and countryside act came in which meant that certain species were protected in a certain way and you know gun laws and things changed and it meant that a lot of museums kind of got rid of a lot of their specimens on show because they were upsetting the public right but now kids being able to run into a gallery space and see a fox and actually have a cuddle with it is such a positive thing for those foxes in the future And it's teaching them that, I mean, he was hit by a car and everyone within the museum knows this and they can talk to the children about it and actually pinpoint why it died. You know, there's a lot of cars on the roads and learn all of those lessons. Mm. Um, Whereas obviously their old specimens were probably, you know, uh, killed in various different ways. And it also teaches them that 
this is culturally important that we still keep these old specimens because they are useful to us now to learn about how we've changed, mm. um, how our laws have changed and how our education has changed. But that's why museums like me to give talks as well, is because I come from this direction of only using things that have died naturally. Is that becoming more of a popular approach, would you say? People becoming interested in taxidermy now, a lot of them are vegetarians and they're often younger women, which I'm not really sure why they're mostly women. And I get asked that a lot, but I I really don't have an answer apart from why not. Being able to source things which have died naturally and realise that it's okay to do taxidermy and not see it as a dirty thing has become really popular. I think there is that slight stigma. When you hear the word taxidermy, you think mounted, endangered species yeah. and sort of hunters and poaching and that, that side of it. Ethically, you're not going to come across anything too exotic in the countryside necessarily. Obviously, my work's quite limited mostly to British wildlife. It doesn't stop me from working with other things as well. So what what would your sort of dream dream job be i'd really like to do a horse one day but it would have to be a commission job because it would just be too expensive for me to fund myself and what would i do with it afterwards how scientific do you see yourself as opposed to the craft art side of it i don't know any of the names of the anatomy i loved biology at school and i do know enough through being interested but it's just every specimen you have is different and you learn from the actual dead bodies you're copying it essentially and everything is different to the fact that you know a woodpecker has a tongue that comes into its mouth around the back of its skull over the top and ends up right next to the middle of its eye like just above its eye and it has a groove in its skull and unless I'd actually worked on a woodpecker and skinned it and seen the inside I would never think to research that so I still see it as an art art direction yeah because you're learning through touch and seeing and it's quite modular in terms of your education it's like right I've got this to do I better learn about this yeah and then you've got that and you've banked that yeah yeah exactly and then obviously if I do another woodpecker I know what it's like and I know the difficulties would you mount a human I wouldn't um because it would look really ugly because as I said inside ears and around eyes and anything that's not covered in fur is going to lose its pigment so we would go a horrible crispy yellow color oh interesting that's not the only reason why i wouldn't (laughs) but yeah yeah yeah. otherwise it's fine yeah but i am interested in human anatomy so i would be interested in seeing that would you rather the world of taxidermy adhered to an ethical approach do you frown upon other taxidermists that might work with hunters or in a slightly less ethically sound circumstance yeah so obviously we have laws in this country so everyone that i work with and know follows those laws they just may use specimens that have been shot if i decided that i wasn't going to work with anyone or associate with anyone that used these specimens i think that i would be very isolated Mm. i'm happy to do the work that I do and do my talks in museums and explain how I make my work and then for someone that's going to commission taxidermy to make a decision on where they want that to come from and hope that just through what I'm doing it might encourage people that are learning to think about where they're getting their specimens from but I wouldn't want to disassociate myself because I would be very alone. Yeah you, you talk about quite a lot of young women coming into 
the industry and you're not sure as to why in particular but so is that is that a change of tide is it traditionally sort of however many names in taxidermy I'd presume they're probably men historically I learned the other day that in Vic- the Victorian period I don't think women were allowed to do it anyway right. like they weren't allowed to go out and shoot and collect things legally I don't know why or frowned upon or something but they might have just as well done it sure. during that period a lot of the more famous taxidermists they are all men there are a few women I don't know why it's women now I feel like it could be because uh, craft is really trendy so it's trendy to be a, a baker or a sewer you think about the programs that are on tv at the moment where people are just watching other people make stuff the new members that are joining the guild of taxidermists few of them are men but mostly they're younger women coming through now Having not known any taxidermist before yourself, I might have had a subconscious stigma about it just through lack of knowledge. And I think when you know someone, you have that new appreciation for it. And if I was to visit a museum, I think I might look at a mounted animal in a slightly different respect. Is that, is, hmm. would you say people are sort of clocking onto that nowadays? When I go to a museum and I look at a specimen, it does make me feel a certain way because I, I don't believe in killing animals and that is a stigma that's still attached to museums and taxidermy itself but I will look and appreciate the work of the craftsman that's made that Mm. and who is that because a lot of them aren't listed within museums back then it was like you'd be a barber a dentist and a taxidermist and you'd be a jack of all trades and it was just something you could do whereas now it is becoming as you said it looks like it's more of an art and it's becoming respected because of people like Polly Morgan and Damien Hurst and people that are putting animals in galleries. For you, obviously that's good in terms of exposure, but I I don't know, it seems like obviously anything that becomes trendy has to become slightly cheapened en route. Mm -hmm. So your Damien Hurst sort of shark in formaldehyde, is that a necessary process, do you think? Like, do you need that exposure, as it were? I'm lucky that I have a job that I earn just enough to survive from and I love it. And without that exposure, it may not be as popular, but it still would be needed. It's still something necessary within museums to educate. So I'd still have a job. It just might not be as busy. If it goes the whole way where there's a, you know, celebrity taxidermy and and all this sort of thing. I think there'll be a great British taxidermy off. When something hits that peak there'll be the natural backlash and decline. I think that it's almost hit that peak maybe a year or two ago. It was really popular in every newspaper. But what happened is that the taxidermy being profiled was bad taxidermy. Mm. So the stuff that was popular was the anthropomorphic rats, you know, playing guitars and things like that. And a book has come out recently, Crap Taxidermy, and it's done really well. And that's still popular now, but... What I'm finding is because of that peak, in the downfall of it, is that people actually want to know how to do it properly. Some people assume taxidermy is going to cost quite a bit of money because if you want to get a good piece, and some people think it's going to cost like 20 quid, and they don't take into account, obviously, things like licenses, but also time. I'll work on a bird over about three days, and I might do other things around that admin and bits and bobs, but it still takes me a long time and a fox the skin itself will take a couple of weeks to pickle and tan and defat and then making the body is a few days and etc so it's not quick and cheap unless you want it to be quick and cheap and it will be quick cheap and bad right 
as in most industries. Yeah. You mentioned the whole bad taxidermy thing, and obviously that was and probably still is quite a prevalent internet meme or fad or what have you. I mean, I'm guilty of sending you the link, <laughs> and I'd imagine you've probably been sent a link to some bad taxidermy more often than not. I didn't think about it at the time, but then I thought, okay, I'm an illustrator. What if people bombarded me with loads of crap illustration? I don't know if I'd yeah. enjoy that. But you might. I might, I guess. Yeah, yeah, because I... Like when I look at that, some of them are interesting to look at and kind of funny. And the thing about those, if they're older pieces, they won't have been done with the intention to be bad. They will have been done with the intention to be good and to the highest of that person's standard. And that's interesting. And I don't think there's a problem with that at all. Now, when they have the education and the resources to make something good, why would you want to do it badly and quickly and not put the effort in? So all of those pieces, you know, they may have been really hot, you know, and they look awful afterwards, but at least they've tried. Yeah, but is it slightly galling that bad taxidermy will always be more popular than good taxidermy? Yeah, but I mean, cat videos of cats falling off walls is going to be more popular than a cat that's had a horrible life and been re-rescued. It's just, we hum- like laughing at animals. Humans it's, are terrible, yeah, terrible things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously you you love live animals and can you detach can you go here is something this is my job you don't go wow i wonder what this squirrel's name was i wonder how many nuts it stored in winter (laughs) (laughs) every good taxidermist has to love animals no matter what direction you're coming from you have to have knowledge of that animal and you're not going to be bothered to spend enough time studying them if you didn't like them you know the old hunters and things that did collect them they would have had to have loved the animals which is kind of a backward thought, but it's still true. When I first started doing taxidermy, every time I got something new in that was a bit like an animal that I would hang out with, like a dog or a cat, it did make me feel weird. So when you skin a cat, the hand, the paws, sorry, inside without the fur and the pads, and it's exactly the same shape as a monkey's hand or a oh human gosh. hand. And it's horrible because it's pink as well. Mm. And that's inside a cat. And I love showing that picture to people, making them guess what it is. Only one in a group of 50 ever get it because it's so not what you expect. So yes, emotionally, it's difficult, but you do unfortunately get used to it. Could you be a butcher, for example? Yes, I think that... Even though you're a vegetarian? Yes, I'd find it interesting. But then, you know, if you're a butcher, you're cutting up something that's been killed for that purpose. If it was a deer that had been hit by a car Mm. and I'd use the skin for taxidermy purposes and my friends really wanted to eat the meat, I'd very happily give them cuts. Although I'd be rubbish at butchery because that's an art in itself, but I'd try. Make use, I guess. Waste is a shame. Why waste? Yeah, Yeah. that's kind of why I first started. I went and volunteered in a museum, which is where the interest kind of came from. And also seeing things hit by cars and what do you do with them? Chuck them in a hedge. They might be eaten by something, but otherwise they'll rot away. So what have you got in your freezers at the moment? Too much stuff. Too much. And how, how long can you legitimately sort of keep something in a freezer? It's better if you do it sooner rather than later and always freeze stuff first. I know stories of people that have just skinned stuff straight away and have been covered in ticks and fleas. So once you've found your specimen, freeze it because it will kill any insects and things that are living on it. And then it can stay in there for a very long time. I recently did a tree creeper, which is a tiny little garden bird, and that had been in there since 1975 or 6. 
and it was really difficult and horrible and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody like uh, cutting into what I imagine it would be like a mummy or something because right. all of the moisture is drawn out it took me almost a day to just to skin it and it and literally is only a bit bigger than my little finger creatively speaking would you want to be an artist taxidermist as it were rather than an educator or commission based when i put things in galleries i guess i still have to call myself an artist to kind of fit in like a a bracket but i still think that i'm just a taxidermist and this is my style and why not put it in a gallery space even if you're an artist and you're making work i think that that gives you a responsibility to share your trade and so education is really important and i would hate to not do that when i started doing this i couldn't do a course i had to bug as many people that did taxidermy and go and volunteer in as many museums as I could. Now I've learnt that skill. If I then didn't pass that on, that would be awful. If you have a skill that you can do and you didn't want to teach, I don't understand that correlation. Even if you consider yourself a bad teacher, I was given a lot of time by people for free to learn my skill. So you want to educate as much about the animal and the craft. Obviously, you've got to be somewhat precious of your craft if that's also your means of income. If you want to be good at taxidermy, it takes a lot of patience, a lot of time. If you taught hundreds of people, maybe only one or two would keep going because it's really hard. And if they kept going and they surpassed me, that would be amazing. Yeah. Is there a global community, would you yeah, say? Yeah, there's a global community. There's obviously some countries that don't do it so much. I went to South Korea and I didn't see any taxidermy there at all. Well, obviously in America it's massive. In Germany it's big as well. But that comes from a more hunting, hunting background. tradition. Yeah. Right. You go by ethical taxidermists. Would you say you're flying the flag for that or are there other people around with similar notions or are you starting some sort funny, of revolution? It's a funny one because I hate it. I hate the title ethical taxidermist. I really, I don't love it. But if I took that away, I would just be a taxidermist and it wouldn't make people question why is she calling herself that? And yeah. at least it makes them realise and ask. So I do have a lot of clients that are vegetarian and things like that. Mm-hmm. And for museums, it's good because it's a, a label and they can say that I do only use things that have died naturally. And it just starts that discussion. I don't know if I'm flying the flag or not. I'm just doing what I want to do and creating work that I don't feel horrible about making. I obviously get commissions which I say no to because I can't do them because they're using specimens which are easier to get hold of if you get them killed. Irrespective of your ethical title has anyone confronted you about it from a what do you do is wrong kind of thing? Yeah of course not as many as I thought I would have. What I did was I talked to them and by the end of it they were like cuddling the rabbits they see it and they think oh disgusting dead animal but if they're willing to understand where I've come from it it does change their perception. It's what people are used to. So people will be like, oh no, you've got a freezer full of dead animals. But then, but then they go, wait, I've got some sausages in my freezer they and don't. some chicken breast. And they don't do that. <laughs> when you break it down to that quite compartmentalised thing, you realise, oh wait, what stigma should yeah. go where in a yeah. way? It's really bizarre because a lot of people still, I mean, I'm so lucky because I have loads of people that I've never even met that find things and give me specimens they've found in their garden and I'm really lucky to have that but other people I know would never ever want to put even a little house sparrow in their freezer because they think that they're going to get a disease 
If it's a house sparrow that's flown into a window and not died of a disease, that sparrow to be alive, flying around and to be able to support a family and all of that has to be healthier than us. And I think that people don't realise that. Obviously, if you find a really mangy, ill-looking rabbit or something like that, but if it's something that's healthy at the top of its game and it's been hit by a car because it was running across a road, there is nothing wrong with touching that. Mm. It's a perception that people could get used to everyone has their different sort of ethical and perceptual approach to life i guess Um, from working with um, domestic animals their insides are fatty and kind of gross whereas inside a wild version the skin comes away easily and they're healthy and lean and and so they're like a real advert for what we do wrong yeah (laughs) you know because we're we're like that on the inside and our pets as well so so in terms of pets that's a bit of an ethical gray area for you i don't do pets because i think that it's emotionally too difficult for everybody involved me for the person um, getting their pet back but if someone had thought about it a lot and had decided it was the only way that they really felt they could go forward i would then have a discussion so i would never do a pet in a living pose with its eyes open I have never done, but I would consider doing a pet sleeping with its eyes closed, for instance. I could buy um, or create, you know, cast some eyes and repaint them myself. But to get the exact, I mean, one of my cats had a special weird pigmentation in her eye, one of my pet cats. And for, to expect someone that's never met it. And the fact that you look at a pet on, on a daily basis and you have that bond, whereas I guess you can be more detached from wild animals because you won't necessarily spend as much time no. with them. No, and you're happy if it looks like that animal, but you're not saying it's got to look exactly like my best friend. Right. Your dog looks at you in a special way and you're expecting a stranger to recreate that for you. It's very difficult. Most creative professions demand a certain amount of isolation. That's kind of why I wanted to do this podcast because... I think there's a lot of frustrated creatives that want to do that sort of educational, they want to pass it on, but they haven't necessarily got an outlet. And yeah. that's kind of what I want to do with this. Is yeah. I'm, I'm lucky because I'm in a profession which isn't oversaturated, like illustration, where there are thousands and thousands of people graduating every year. As I said before, if one or two taxidermists come through from hundreds of people learning, that's amazing. Do you like to feel like... I am top of my game. I'm, I'm a respected part of this industry. I feel that I'm very lucky, but I'm very young in my industry. So I've only been doing it for nine years, but my peers within the Guild of Taxidermists, they've been doing it for like 50 years. So you're the young upstart. I'm Yeah, <laughs> so I don't know if I deserve that kind of respect. When I'm older and I've been doing it for ages and my hands don't work anymore, I will feel like maybe I've earned... I think that's that's the cool thing about the world in which we live where people can start younger, they can learn younger and get good younger and the access to information allows that and there shouldn't be anything wrong with being young or anything wrong with being male, female, no, whatever. Exactly. It, it's yeah. It should just be an open forum and if people are good, they're good. Yeah, I agree with that and there's a lot of 11 to 13 year old kids at the moment that follow me on Twitter and I have conversations with And they are so damn intelligent. They want to be taxidermists or museum curators, and they're going to be because they're so damn good already. Where do you think that comes from? I think that social media is meaning that they have somewhere to go. So I think that when we were, you know, 13, I couldn't, like, talk to a museum curator in 
America and say, not, I not love your work. You, yeah, if you had them on MSN Messenger, yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there are kids now with their own books coming out, like Jake Bones, who's, who's, his book came out when he was like 15 or something. And he's amazing. He's like blatantly going to be a museum director or something. And he's so young. But yeah, it's access. And I don't think we should begrudge the youth for taking advantage. And using their time well to look on the internet and learn all of the Latin phrases. You could be doing a lot worse things on the internet at the age of 13. <laughs> yes, Ali. I don't know what I you were doing. At it, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Have you got any pearls of wisdom? That's what. That's how I want to sign off. Um, it doesn't have to be a real pearl of wisdom. It could be made up. The one thing that I do say is that you should always try and stay calm. And that's kind of a general thing for all work. Just life. I'm really bad at doing. So try and stay calm when I'm doing taxidermy and be relaxed. But actually, I'm like dying inside with stress when I'm working on something really hard. But stay calm. Stay calm. I like that. It's a good pearl of wisdom. I just realised, are your ears, or is it the light, is one of them smaller than the other one? Yeah. Yeah. See? I wouldn't have known that. We're learning so much about one another. It's <laughs> Thanks again to Jasmine for joining me today. If you want to find out more about her work, visit jasminemileslong.com or follow her on Twitter at Taxidermy London. I've been your host, Ali Graham, and this has been an audio blog podcast.